Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And this is Joe McCormick, and today on Weird House Cinema, we are going to be looking at the 1986 uh, science fiction horror comedy Terror Vision. I would call this movie a festival of bad taste. Yes, uh, Terror Vision 1986 is a campy, cheesy, over-the-top send-up of TV trash culture. And I think one of the reasons that I love it so much Um, I I didn't see this one back in the day. I only saw this in the last 10 years uh, or so for the first time. But I think it perfectly captures for me the feeling of watching tons of late night television in the 1990s, especially the kind of stuff you'd encounter on USA Up All Night, which ran 1989 through 1998, uh, and other examples of late night programming. You never knew what sort of camp, sleaze, outright horror, or just sheer weirdness you might encounter. And for better or worse, likely worse, you also used all of this content to sort of try and figure out how the world works. Oh, no, that's a, that's a terrible way to figure out how the world works. I mean, this it was it was the nineties. Uh, TV <laughs> helped raise us, and um, you know we trusted that it knew what it was doing. And I think that kind of energy is also um, spoofed somewhat, and uh, in this picture. When I say it's a festival of bad taste, I mean that deliberately in that it seems like every element of the film was sort of intentionally selected to to turn up the gain on on tastelessness in whatever way it could. So, like, the monsters in it are intentionally gross. It, it does get into melt movie territory. Uh, mm-hmm. There's just a lot of, like, ooze and kind of, like, barf-inducing uh, uh, texture. In fact, even one of the characters looks at the monster and just says, he 
he's so barfy. Uh, <laughs> but then on top of that, the film is just full. Of, like a lot of the satire in it is visual satire. It like doesn't. It's not even in the script. It's just like the way characters are dressed and the interior sets and everything are structured in such a way as to be maximally offensive to the eye, to your sense of like color coordination, and generally to your sense of like cultural aesthetics or taste. Like everything is gaudy and over the top. And in a way I think is is meant to be a kind of, I don't know exactly what this movie is going for. I don't know if it is a satire of American culture in the 1980s or a satire of the way American culture is typically depicted on TV in the 1980s. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think it can kind of be both when you get into this idea of of here's the way things are depicted and then uh, in media, and then that media is consumed, and then via consumption of that media is it then reproduced in culture. Okay, well, yeah, and this movie is in many ways about media consumption. The primary thing people do in this movie is watch television and then in various ways become affected by what's on the television, sometimes literally because what's on the television is a monster that comes out of the screen and then eats and replicates the body of Grandpa. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a really fun send-up. Um, I believe, uh, if, I, if I remember correctly from some of the extras, director uh, Ted uh, Nicolau uh, said that he, he thinks of the set and visual feel of TerraVision as an operatic Italian exaggeration of American culture. Because as we'll discuss, this was filmed in Rome, um, and, uh, and so a lot of, the, a lot of the, the crew members were Italian filmmakers. Oh, that's interesting because I feel like I quite often am able to detect even subdermal Italian influences in, in film. And I wouldn't have been able to tell you that about this one. Yeah, I wouldn't say it has a particular uh, Italian feel to it. Um, but uh, but yeah, this one, this one's a fun one. It's uh, I think it's also what you might classify as a satellite TV panic movie. Uh, movies are stories that use fantasy to explore the suddenly expansive reach of cable and satellite television. Uh, as well as the feeling of perhaps overchoice that may set in. I think the only other prime example of this subgenre, or perhaps sub subgenre, is Stay Tuned from 1992. That's uh, directed by Peter Hyams of Time Cop fame, starring mm -hmm. uh, John Ritter and Eugene Levy. Um, and it's interesting that that movie's working title was also Terror Vision, uh, and that one involved a family literally sucked into the world of TV programming. Been a long time since I've seen that one, but I think. The family is perhaps more likable in that one. Um, one thing that Ted Nicolau has said about the, the family in TerraVision is that, yes, they're all over-the-top stereotypes, and they're not supposed to be particularly likable because you want to feel okay when they all inevitably are eaten by the monster. Now, in this movie, we're also going back to band camp because this is an Empire International picture. So it was produced by Charles Band, and it was definitely developed title and poster first. <laughs> and yeah, it was a shot back to back in Rome alongside 1986's Troll. Man, when those Charles Band production tags with the flame textured lettering come on at the beginning of the movie, they are so evocative. They make me feel like I am 19 years old. I'm sitting on the carpeted floor in somebody's apartment living room. The fibers of the carpet are just sequined with little yellow bits of popcorn, both fresh and fossilized. It's like 1.35 a.m. It's a Tuesday <laughs> and the movie is just starting. There you go. Yeah. Dancing by the light of the TV screen. 
Uh, my elevator pitch for this one, I think, is satellite TV is bridging the gap between the dysfunctional American family and dysfunctional alien civilizations. Is the alien civilization dysfunctional? I, I feel like the most sympathetic character in the movie is actually <laughs> the reptilian uh, creature who who comes through the television screen to try to help deal with the mess, uh, but then right. is murdered by a TV horror host. Yes, he is, in a way, the most likable character, the most noble character, but also he's trying to clean up his own whoopsie. Uh, you know, yeah. like this is a culture that raises monstrous pets, and then when they get to big and too monstrous they just like zap them across the universe and don't worry about them so yeah, yeah i might i might be applying uh, reading too much dysfunction into their ways but they kind of created this whole mess yeah there there may be some unethical elements in how the machinery of this alien civilization works but the one alien we meet it does seem moderately well-intentioned within the the range of his freedom of action yeah yeah we'll see if he can pull pull it off uh, let's go ahead and listen to part of the trailer. Uh, yeah, I think JJ on this one, let's just, let's just have a little bit of it. This trailer, um, uh, feels a little long and definitely contains spoilers and visual spoilers. So if you're interested in, in watching this more or less spoiler free, I mean, we've already spoiled a few things and it's, it's the kind of film where you can go into it with spoilers and you're not going to really ruin your experience. But l- let's just get a part of this, uh, the, the, the trailer audio here. Intellectual decay! Turn it off and rot your brain cells! are just a typical American family. The only thing they're missing is a pet. But have we got a surprise for them? You see, Stanley Putterman's new satellite TV has just gone on the blink. And it's drawn in a creature from outer space. Like all new pets, this one's causing a little trouble around the house. He's eating the Pottermans out of house and home. In fact, it seems like this creature will eat anything. Well, just about anything. He looked right at my studs and cooled out. This dude's into metal! All right. Now, if you want to watch this movie in full before continuing the rest of the episode, um... There, this was this is a film that was streaming years back. I think I saw it for the first time on uh, Prime back when they had a vast selection of strange films uh, that you could just uh, comb through. Uh, there's not a great streaming option for it as of this recording, but it is widely available on Blu-ray. Uh, you can actually get it as a DVD-Blu-ray combo with the video Dead 1987, uh, which otherwise has nothing to do with this film. Uh, but it's a nice, nice Blu-ray edition, good quality, and has a, a nice... 30-minute behind-the-scenes featurette that's uh, that's worth watching as well. We rented it from Videodrome. All right, let's get into the connections here, uh, the people who made this film. Uh, The writer and director is Ted Nicolau, born 1949. Writer and director, probably best known for his work with Charles Band's Empire and Full Moon Pictures. He graduated from the University of Texas film program and worked as a sound recordist on 1974's The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, Joe, for you, I included a picture that I saw on Nicolau's Instagram account uh, that shows him on the set of Texas Chainsaw Massacre with some recording equipment. Is he just chilling in the uh, the Sawyer family's living room here? Or I guess that's the, the porch. Looks like the porch. He's out yeah. chilling on the porch with the recording equipment while I guess everyone's inside just sweating it out. He looks like Frank Zappa. 
Yeah, well, you know, Zappa will come up <laughs> again in this episode. But yeah, oh, really, yeah, yeah. He's got that that cool mustache going on here. Um, after this, he worked as an editor on such films as 79's Tourist Trap, 81's Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker, Ghoulies, and Trancers in 84, Robot Jocks in 89, and Trancers oh. 2 in 91. So uh, at least a couple of films that we've watched. Have you ever seen Tourist Trap? That one is weird. Is this the one where people were buried up to their necks in the dirt? Or is this a different one? Uh, maybe, though. I don't remember that element. It's a movie where it's sort of a, a Texas Chainsaw style movie where, you know, some city kids come to the uh, the, the rural uh, estate of a, of a creepy guy in Texas. But the creepy guy is Chuck Connors. Like, <laughs> I think he plays like a country music guy in the Blues Brothers. Mm, okay. You know, now that I look at it, I think I have seen Tourist Trap. I think I watched a, a Rift Tracks uh, version of this uh, several years back. I'm thinking about some other film with the buried up to your, your neck uh, situation. I'm thinking of Motel Hell, by the way, from 1980, um, which has Rory Calhoun in it. Um, but that's one that I've never watched, but I remember my aunt explaining the plot to me when I was a very young child and I was like horrified that such a film existed. Uh, so I think maybe that's kept me from seeing it, even though it is, I think, supposed to be a satire of things like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I just looked it up and Chuck Connors is not in the Blues Brothers. So I'm, I don't know why I said that earlier. Well, it's an extensive cast. Easy to get lost in the cast of that film. His wiki says that uh, Chuck Connors did meet with uh, Leonid Brezhnev at some point. Uh, hmm. I, Okay. Well, anyway, T Ted Nicolau, <laughs> uh, his first writing and directing credit is 1984's The Dungeon Master, followed by the Linda Blair movie Savage Island in 85. Uh, as we mentioned, he was brought in to bring Charles Band's poster and title idea to life with TerraVision, and he pushed, but he got to, you know, create its direction from there. And so he pushed hard to take the concept into comedic and camp territory, and that's where we end up landing. Uh, post Terrorvision, which was not a success upon release, he went on to direct Subspecies 2 and 3. I've heard that Subspecies 2 is the best one, by the way, uh, <laughs> as well as Subspecies 4 and 5. He also directed 92's Bad Channels, which touches on similar themes to, as Terrorvision, but with radio and music video. He also directed 2004's Puppet Master versus Demonic Toys. Uh, if he did another TV satire movie i'd be kind of interested to see that one back to back the the bad channels one there because terrorvision seems to simultaneously uh skewer uh, american tv consumption and tv programming uh but also skewers the critique of such like the characters mm -hmm. who are going on about how bad television is are also made the subject of fun yeah, so it, uh, uh, I, I hope everyone understands the concept here that it's not a film that comes off as really judgy or anything. Like, it's not it's not so serious in its uh, in its satire, perhaps. No. It's, and it is ultimately you know played for laughs and fun. Not at all. No, it is wacky and again a festival of bad taste. Well, let's talk about the family in this. Uh, a family that consists of a husband, a wife, a daughter, a son and a grandfather that, in this case, lives with them. Um, kind of a structure that's very similar to that of The Simpsons. Ah, okay, yes, except if Grandpa Simpson lived in a fallout shelter yes. under The Simpsons' house. Exactly. So let's start with the daughter, Susie Putterman. 
uh, played by Diane Franklin. Uh, born 1962, iconic 80s teen actor who appeared in The Last American Virgin and Amityville 2 in 1982. She was in Better Off Dead uh, and, uh, in 1985, and also Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure in 89. She also did a fair amount of TV and has remained active to this day in various productions. Susie Putterman is an MTV 80s kid with, uh, I don't know, how would you how would you describe the fashions of Susie Putterman? Well, she's sort of a cross between, I think, what was considered, you know, pop music fashionable at the time. So the, the kind of dress of like Pat Benatar or Cyndi Lauper, but then crossed with an actual Barbie doll. So very <laughs> over the top neon pink kind of clothing and, and stuff like that. And she also has really, really big hair. Her hair extends, I'd say, at least 10 inches off of her scalp. Yeah, her, her entire identity seems to be based on watching MTV, which, again, is, is perfect, uh, fits the, the theme perfectly. And Franklin is absolutely great in the role. Just the right amount of campiness, uh, it's over the top, and also just a little bit green in, in all the right ways for a movie like this. Yeah, I think she understood what was going on. All right, then we have the younger son, Sherman Putterman, played by Chad Allen, born 1974, 80s child actor who also did a lot of TV, voiced Charlie Brown on Happy New Year, Charlie Brown in 86 prior to this film. And his uh, TV credits include such shows as Webster, Tales from the Dark Side, Highway to Heaven, Punky Brewster, Star Trek The Next Generation, and The Wonder Years. Sherman is essentially kind of a kid Rambo. Uh, he idolizes grandpa and is into whatever grandpa's into because I, I guess part of it is that his actual parents are kind of completely checked out and, and chasing their own interests. Right. They are hedonistic, materialist 80s yuppies. All right. Well, let's talk about them. The dad, Stan Putterman, is played by, oh, the excellent, the always excellent Garrett Graham. Uh, born 1949. We've discussed Garrett Graham before as he had a small but fun role in another great 1986 horror comedy, Chopping Mall. Uh, was he just like a security guard in that? Yeah, a doomed security guard. I think he was doomed. I, I, yeah. I don't remember. He was very distracted. I don't think I've seen a movie Garrett Graham was in where he survived. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he plays a lot of, uh, of like uh, mid or early, early horror film death characters, I think. Uh, but yeah, he is, is, uh, is, a, is was an American stage television and film actor with a knack for camp. Uh, he appeared in four different Brian De Palma films, most notably 1974's Phantom of the Paradise, in which he plays Beef. Graham's other credits include 1977's Demon Seed, 86's Rat Boy, 87's It's Alive 3, Island of the Alive, Police Academy 6 in 1989, and he plays the titular Bud in Chud 2, Bud the Chud. Also from 1989, he's in Child's Play 2 from 1990, and he did. He has numerous TV credits as well, including, I mean, all sorts of stuff. Multiple track shows, Weird Science, Law and & Order, uh, and one Tales from the Crypt episode, The Man Who Is Death. His last credit was in 2012. This character, Stan, is uh, egocentric, hedonistic, uh, seeking of pleasure and adulation, and he wants to be respected for his skills at uh, assembling do-it-yourself uh, home electronics installations, especially the new satellite dish. Now, playing his wife, the mom, Raquel Putterman, is Mary Warrenoff, uh, born 1943. Another camp and genre legend uh, that we also mentioned in Chopping Mall, because she has a very small part in that. Um, she started out as a Warhol superstar, what Back in the 60s, I believe. 
and uh, acted in a ton of B-movies, especially Corman films. Uh, she also did a lot of TV and stage work. Uh, I, I always smile when she shows up in a film because yeah, just, she's generally an absolute delight. Um, she often appeared in films alongside friend and fellow actor Paul Martell, uh, her director and co-star in 1982's Eating Raul. Her other credits include 75's Death Race 2000, which is a very fun, kind of wacky Corman race movie, uh, like racing across the desert, uh, 1979's Rock and Roll High School, and 1984's Night of the Comet. Uh, she did one episode of the Monsters Horror Anthology TV show, and she still occasionally acts. Uh, she was in 2009's House of the Devil. Mary Warnoff's great. I always love to see her. Yeah, in, in this, she's a, an aerobics enthusiast and general self-absorbed mom. Um, apparently, she was called in to read for the role of Medusa, who we'll get to in a bit, but then campaigned for the role of the mother instead, and she got it. And uh, yeah, I think, I think she's great in this role. All right, and then we have Grandpa Putterman, uh, played by Burt Rimson, who lived 1925 through 1999, American character actor with, uh, with a lot of credits, um, a lot of TV credits, a lot of them like war and westerns, uh, going back to the early 1950s. He pops up in such films as 59's Pork Chop Hill, 59's Destination Space. He's in 1975's Nashville. He's in 1990's Dick Tracy. He's in The Bodyguard from 92, and he's Ooh. in uh, Maverick from 94. And like I say, his TV credits are just really extensive and include uh, things like the original Outer Limits, but also the Andy Griffith show. Grandpa uh, in this film... <laughs> Is, is a kooky conspiracy nut survivalist who, again, lives in the family's fallout shelter beneath the house. And he's, a, he's an enthusiastic advocate of regenerated lizard tail jerky. You know, I thought it was interesting that this is a character who I would not be surprised to see in a, uh, in a wacky satirical film of today. Uh, but I don't know. He seems kind of ahead of his time. I guess there were like apocalypse preppers in the 80s, too. But uh, I, don't, I don't know. That seems like a less prevalent trope from from that time. Yeah. All right. Now, we mentioned Susie Petterman. Well, Susie has a boyfriend. Her boyfriend is O.D., uh, which is not an Irish name as the character. There's a joke about this in the film, but it's the, the initials O.D., played by John Grise. Uh, born 1957. Many of you probably know John Grise best as Uncle Rico in 2004's Napoleon Dynamite. Um, he's, he's great in that. Uh, but he's been a fun, weird presence in TV and film for a long time. Uh, prior to Terrorvision, he did various teen movies, including Real Genius in 85. Other credits include Running Scared in 86. He pops up in Monster Squad in 87. Fright Night 2 in 88. The Grifters in 1990. Men in Black in 97. Taken 3 in 2014, and his TV credits include such shows as The 90s Outer Limits, Sons of Anarchy, Lost, uh, Creep Corp LLC, and uh, The White Lotus. So he's oh, all over yeah. the place. He is in The White Lotus. He's uh, he's the wolf man in Monster Squad. He's, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and you know what? Great respect to him in Terrorvision because m much like Diane Franklin, like he he gets what's going on. And in uh, his case, he does not hold back at all. He just like goes into this role teeth first. <laughs> yeah. On the extras on the disc, they interview him and he's like, yeah, I would I, I we, we were just all in. And but a, a time or two, I'd come up to Ted Nicolau and I would be like. Ted, am I am I doing too much here? Am I going? Is it this too over the top? And and uh, Nicolau would be like, No, no, it's perfect. It's perfect. Keep doing what you're doing. More spittle should be flying out of your mouth every line you deliver. <laughs> 
All right. Now we're getting into just a, we're going to try, I'm going to try and go a little shorter on these, but we, we have some other bit characters here. There's a character named Spiro who shows up with his girlfriend, Cherry. Uh, Spiro is played by Alejandro Rey, who lived 1930 through 1987, Argentinian born actor and occasional TV director, active back into the 1950s, did a lot of TV and Westerns, did 78 episodes of The Flying Nun, an episode of Night Gallery. Pops up in 1980s, the ninth configuration, and you better know he did an episode of the Love Boat. Mm. He's doing an episode of the Love Boat in this movie. <laughs> he is, yeah. I I guess he's supposed to be an insensitive, over the top Euro stereoty- stereotype, specifically like a Greek stereotype. I guess. Um, I suppose there's the fact that Nicolau is, uh, I assume, of Greek descent. I don't know, but. Yeah, Spiro and his girlfriend, Cherry, are adventurous lovers who have been invited to the Sputterman home. Cherry is played by Randy Brooks, born 1954. She did a lot of action and crime-oriented TV work. Uh, She was in 1983's The Man with Two Brains and 1986's Hamburger, the motion picture. She also (laughs) has a bit part in the Michael Crichton written and directed film Looker from 1981. Oh, I don't know if I've ever even heard of that. But what what is Hamburger the Motion Picture? Is that like a, a McDonald's tie-in thing? Is Ooh, that... It's not one I'm familiar with. It looks like one of these like over-the-top um, comedy films of the time that either didn't resonate then and certainly hasn't continued to resonate now. Like I've, you never hear, or I never hear anything about it. Maybe it's great, but I've never seen it. Oh, I just looked it up. Okay, it says it is uh, one of the 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 1980s teen sex comedy movies. All right, oh, there you go. Not a not a wonderful genre that people love revisiting. <laughs> yeah. Um. This uh, and the poster is just repulsive. It's just like a bunch of people inside a hamburger bun. <laughs> Well, it was it was acceptable in the 80s. Yeah. Uh, but uh, anyway, uh, we mentioned there was going to be a Medusa in this. We do have a character named Medusa, uh, played by Jennifer Richards, born 1948. Pledged, essentially, this is a late night horror host in the vein of Elvira. Um, she in this film, she also seems to have a, a, a 900 number you can call, which also is like spot on for uh, memories of watching late night television, you know, particularly in the, the 90s or I guess the late 80s. Uh, Richard's credits include a fair amount of TV, including Night Court, Mama's Family and Star Trek The Next Generation. Another teeth first performance. She's just like chomping the scenery. Uh, she's doing great. Speaking of teeth, uh, we also have Sonny <laughs> Carl Davis in this. He plays this character Norton, who's the satellite dish guy. Uh, I think most people know him from uh, his 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 most culturally important role, and that is playing Rabbit in Trancers 2. <laughs> you know, I was thinking where would more people know him from, and it would probably be, he's like the guy who complains about his food at the at Judge Reinhold's restaurant in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. And I guess he, he's also in Thelma and Louise. I uh, don't remember what he is in that, but he, uh, but he, yeah, when I was like, I recognize this guy. What do I recognize him from? It was Trancers too. He's the <laughs> what he like. He's a hospital orderly who helps one of Jack Death's reincarnated time travel wives escape from an institution controlled by the bad guys. I believe that's it. I believe you nailed it, Joe. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I would say Sonny Carl Davis is probably recognized for films like Thelma and Louise and Fast Times at Richmond High, but he is known for playing rabbit <laughs> specifically see. in transfers uh, too, but uh, this character also came back in multiple evil bong movies. So, um, you know, there's a whole, he has a, he has an expanded role within the Charles band 
um, expanded cinematic universe. All right, now going behind the scenes, we have to mention uh, that John Carl Beekler worked on this uh, this film. Oh. Uh, born, he lived nineteen fifty two through twenty nineteen. A practical special effects and makeup legend. John Carl Beekler loved to make slime. He he liked to make like uh, makeup effects and and creature models and stuff that were covered in some sort of mucus. Yeah, and there's a there's a lot of mucus to go around in this film. Uh, <laughs> Uh, he's uh, he's come up on the show before because he did special effects on 1986, the uh, the Eliminators, which I guess wasn't particularly mucusy. But he also worked on 1989's Arena, which definitely had its share of mucus. The Eliminators was the Bayou Betty movie, and <laughs> yeah. Arena was the one where the guy uh, fights people. He fights aliens. He like has boxing matches with giant crickets. That's right. Uh, Beekler worked on a number of cult classic horror films, including 85's Reanimator, 86's From Beyond, both very drippy movies. Uh, just, yeah, a master of flesh and blood in, in, uh, in films like this. He also had a great career as a director, uh, helming 86's Troll. Uh, so at the time of this movie, he was editing Troll at night because they had just wrapped. And he was shooting this during the day, working on special effects on this during the day, uh, all in, in Rome. Um, let's see. He also directed 87 Cellar Dweller. He directed Friday the 13th, The New Blood, mm. and also 1990s Ghoulies Go to College, uh, just to name a few. What do the Ghoulies major in? Toilet studies? I'm not <laughs> sure. <laughs> he did the uh, Friday the 13th movie with the, the psychic girl in it. It's the one that's Jason oh. versus the girl who has telekinesis. That one's great. I love that one. It's one of the best. Yeah. And and Jason looks at his best in that. It's just amazing. Look. Agreed. That's the first Kane Hodder movie and has one of the best Jason costume designs. Yeah, absolutely. Well, in this, he designed and built The Hungry Beast, which we'll explain in a bit, based on some ideas uh, from Ted Nicolau. Uh, apparently, they wanted a monster that looked horrifying and stupid at the same time. I think they <laughs> nailed it. All right. Uh, quick note on the music here. So the score is by Richard Band. Um, this is Charles Band's brother, uh, born 1953, who has just worked extensively on Empire and Full Moon pictures. Um, so just, you know, if, if you can name uh, a Full Moon picture, he probably scored it. Uh, the score here is aggressively campy and kooky, but effective. Um, apparently, uh, Nicolau was originally in talks with both the Cramps and Frank Zappa about possibly scoring the film. Uh, but And they didn't approach Band at first because they were, weren't sure he was going to be able to really ratchet up the camp but he accepted the challenge and i think it, it works pretty well wow i could see the cramps or frank zappa being perfect for this that yeah both make sense but then they were able to bring in on the soundtrack the american art rock band the fibonacci's who wrote and recorded five tracks for the film including all oh, the excellent theme song um they came out of the Los Angeles art punk scene and were active from 81 through 88. And then I think they were they came back together in 92 briefly. Uh, their songs popped up on another of uh, on a number of sort of indie films uh, on 82's Android, 87's Slam Dance. And uh, lead vocalist Maggie Song also acted in another 80s weird camp art horror film of note, 1989's Dr. Caligari. Has nothing to do with the cabinet cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Yeah. Uh, but and I'm not sure it's right for Weird House, but it is a trip uh, if if you are interested in that sort of film. Let's hear just a taste of the theme song Terror Vision by the Fibonacci's. Give us a legal limit on this one, JJ. I dance by the light, 
I love it. I'm not sure if we got to hear much of the the lyrics there, but uh, they're pretty great. And they're like, they're really on message here. Uh, Cold October night, mom and dad asleep, creeping past their bedroom door. I hear the cries of sheep. I dance by the light of the TV screen all night long. I watch the Medusa's eyes turn green, but my own reflection I've never seen. Love it. Oh, okay. Maybe I'm reading too deep into this, but the cries of sheep is that. So on one hand, you could say that as like uh, uh, it's just a spooky horror image. Sheep are being led to the slaughter. But also it's like, ah, we are all sheep watching the TV and just, Mm -hmm. you know, doing whatever, reproducing whatever activities we see on the screen. But also uh, the the line about Medusa's eyes turn green, but my own reflection I've never seen. Again, am I reading too much into it that this is saying like the because we are able to uh, to sort of like hypnotize ourselves with constant media, we like never have time to self reflect. Yeah, yeah, I think I, I think it's fair. I think it's a, yeah, okay. a, a fair uh, analysis. Um, uh, if you happen to be a vinyl collector, you can get the original soundtrack and score on vinyl from a company I'm not I'm not familiar with WRWTFWW Records but it includes both the Richard Band score and those five tracks by the Fibonacci's Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples Rob as the uh, the local host with allergies here they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Uses directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or... I can conquer it. 
I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, Joe. Well, shall we go ahead and uh, bang on the satellite dish and uh, tune into the plot? Right. So I don't think it would make sense to cover every scene in the plot like we do with some movies here because this is more of a a wacky, satirical film. Uh, So I don't know. It feels weird to do a a full scene-by-scene recap, but I think we will zoom in pretty close on, like, the opening. Yeah. So after the those flame-textured uh, Charles Band production tags go away, the movie opens on a miniature model planet surface set, and there is a dark blue alien sky, a red gas giant looming over the horizon, and a bunch of towers and monuments and various structures covered in greebles. And I always love this kind of thing. Love a model planet surface. Yeah, you can you can definitely spot a piece of um, uh, USS Enterprise model kit in there. Uh, Upside down, yeah. Yeah. I think there are also some uh, vacuum cleaner attachment parts that, uh, that have been mm-hmm. spray-painted silver. Yeah. Nice. And then we get a little key at the bottom. It says, Planet Pluton, Sanitation Department. And then there's a pause. And then the, the third line appears. It says, Mutant Creature Disposal Unit. <laughs> <laughs> That got a laugh out of me. I don't know. That, that was good. Um, if we, so That's just like very specific. Uh, so then we cut inside straight to an extreme close-up of this disgusting face. It's sort of like a sentient slice of burned pizza. Mm. Some gross, wet, red wall of skinless flesh with a single eyeball and a mouth with barracuda teeth. And it is gargling at us. Then we pull back and reveal that this face is behind some kind of glass shield. And then there is a humanoid alien with a scaly reptilian head banging on the glass. And the humanoid alien moves over to a control panel and yanks a lever, which apparently incinerates the wall of pizza monster behind the glass. It, you know, some kind of energy fills the room. Uh, I guess like they tried to do in the green slime to, you know, incinerate mm-hmm. the uh, the green slime that was clinging to the, the suits that the uh, astronauts brought back with them from the asteroid. But much like in the green slime, it doesn't work. Instead of the creature being incinerated, we see a tower kind of shoot out a little bullet of electricity into space. And it flies around and then bounces between planets like a pinball in a pinball cabinet, you know, hitting the bumpers. And then it finally comes straight at the screen. And I think this means that the pizza entity is coming to Earth. Yeah, that seems like what's going to happen. And, you know, this is one of those films where they... They showed us the monster immediately, Mm -hmm. uh, which I think works in two ways for this film. For starters, the monster looks great. Uh, Beekler hit it out of the park here with uh, The Hungry Beast. But also, the sort of movie this is. This is not a movie that is built around the suspense of what will the monster look like. 
Well, yeah, because this is this is not a horror movie. This is a comedy movie using the conventions of horror and you know, keeping the keeping the monsters form more secret, I think, works better for the purpose of suspense. Uh, there's something that is funnier about showing the monster right at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Then we go to Earth and we meet our core family. We already talked about these characters, but uh, briefly, there is Stan, the father. That's Garrett Graham. When you first meet him, he is fiddling with the install it yourself satellite TV antenna that he just bought. Uh, I think this is picking up on, you know, this movie is not alone in this, that there is a common uh, uh, trope in 80s movies of the the suburban dad who loves to takes great pride in installing expensive electronics himself, you know, in his new sound system or in setting up the new television and so forth. Yeah, he's at once overconfident uh, in his own abilities to tinker with this stuff, but also um, has no patience for it. And then it's also very demanding of the expertise that's called in to actually fix it. Oh, right. Which is why we've got Sonny Carl Davis just like standing there nearby. At first, I thought like, OK, is this guy supposed to be like a friend or a neighbor of Garrett Graham's? But no, he is the television antenna repair guy. And he's standing mm-hmm. there drinking, uh, drinking beers out of Garrett Graham's fridge. Oh, not just any beers. They're Heineken's. They're Heineken's. Uh, this, this movie seems to have been uh, sponsored by Heineken. They say the word Heine at least 10 times. Yeah. I mean, if it's funny once, just keep doing it. It'll be um, funny the seventh time you talk about <laughs> guzzling a Heine. Yeah. Um, we also have to note, like, at, at this point, we're outside the house. We'll get to talk about the interior of the house in a minute. But just outside, it's clear that this was uh, an interior set that was created to look like mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, the outside of this house, probably somewhere in suburban California. Uh, but it has this just wonderful look because on one hand, it doesn't feel 100% fake. You know, it doesn't feel completely phony. Uh, it feels accurate, but it also feels artificial enough that we really get into this um, this wonderful zone that, you know, I would compare to some of the films of, say, um, uh, Tim Burton, Artificial Satirical America. Yeah, yeah. I would not have thought of that comparison, but yeah, uh, the the Tim Burton thing, it has a kind of uh, Edward Scissorhands uh, quality to the, the satirical picture painted of suburban America, except it is um, a little less precious, not a little, a lot less precious and more wacky and disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> Now, inside the house, we meet uh, uh, Raquel. That's the mother, played by Mary Warrenov, and she's trying to do her aerobics. Uh, this is another thing that I feel like there are a million movies that have the, you know, the wealthy suburban mom from the 80s who's constantly wearing an aerobics outfit and doing aerobics along with like a TV program. Yeah, absolutely. Absolute stereotype here. Stereotypes continue with the daughter, Susie. Again, uh, she's dressed, you know, it's a Pat Benatar kind of thing. There's spandex, a pink sweater, you know, like 30 different necklaces and beads and bracelets, uh, multicolored hairdo that comes way up off the top of her head. Big, big hair. The son, Sherman, uh, he likes to play army. You know, that's his whole personality, basically. He, he likes to run around with toy guns. And then later in the movie, uh, it turns out his grandfather has, turn, has trained him how to use, like, grenades and real machine guns. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I guess Gramps has done most of the, the raising of the child as dad is too interested in his own pursuits. Yes. When we first meet Gramps, he comes through the front door muttering about some conspiracy involving U-2 spy planes. 
and he's carrying a sign about eating lizards to survive the apocalypse. And we understand that Gramps' day job is that he stands on a street corner downtown with this sign and yells at people and hands out pamphlets about the, the end of the world. Yeah, yeah. He's wearing this ridiculous outfit. There's like a military uniform with plastic lizards glued to it and stuff. It's uh, it, it's it's so over the top. It's wonderful. Now, while Garrett Graham is working on the satellite dish, suddenly there is a giant bolt of lightning from space and it comes down into the satellite dish. Somehow it fixes the satellite dish and now the TV's working all right. And so there's a scene where all the members of the, the they're like holding this remote control for the TV, which is, you know, the size is bigger than a laptop would be now. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got all these dials and controls on it and they're flipping around to enjoy their own favorite channels. So for a bit, they watch like a martial arts movie and then they tune into just footage of uh I, like troops marching around from some historical thing. And the, uh, the Gramps is like, oh, the troop movements. We've got to watch <laughs> this. Uh, for some reason, they just as a whole family stand there and watch pornography for a minute. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, oh, and then they turn that uh, the daughter's request. They put it on MTV and it's some Nigel Tufnell type uh, heavy metal singer going like, ah! and uh, of course, Susie is really into it. But also Mary Warnov, she's like, this is wrong. He's so nasty, but clearly she she is into heavy metal also secretly. <laughs> now, Gramps does not like MTV. He says it is brain rot. It is the intellectual conspiracy. And he, you know, changes the channel, which ends up being turned to what is the the Medusa program. It's called Medusa's Midnight Horrorthon, which, as you said earlier, Rob, is an Elvira style uh, comedically seductive horror host. Elvira, the Mistress of the Dark, being the character uh, uh, portrayed by uh, Cassandra Peterson. That's a campy, over-the-top, voluptuous, kind of uh, like queen of the night. You could compare this character, Elvira, to Vampira uh, of of, of decades prior, uh, who, of course, pops up in the excellent Ed Wood movie Plan 9 from Outer Space. At one point, I think Vampira tried to sue Elvira for stealing her act, but... uh... Uh, I, I don't know how that court case worked out. We 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 love them both. We're not going to choose sides. <laughs> now, of course, Gramps turns into the uh, the the cartoon wolf when uh, Medusa <laughs> comes on TV. You know, his eyes are shooting six feet out of his head, uh, and he comes up with a way of rationalizing why it's okay to keep watching this, even though you know the the MTV was brain rot. He says war stories and horror movies are educational. You know, they're su- survival oriented. And I loved this because it reminds me of one of my favorite bits of real world video ever, which uh, if you've never seen this before, you should look it up. It is a 1979 reported segment by a local news station in Fort Worth, Texas, about the release of Ridley Scott's Alien, where they've got a reporter on the ground interviewing people coming out of the movie theater who have just watched Alien, including people who brought their small children with them. And so they're like (laughs) asking kids, you know, did you like, was the movie scary? Did you like it? So they talk to this one boy and he's like, "Uh, yeah, it was scary. Yeah, I'm glad I saw it. But then they go up to this father who is there with his wife and an elementary school age son. And the reporter goes, are you sorry, sir, that you brought your son along to see Alien? And the father is like, no, ma'am, I think he needs to know that things like this could happen in life. (laughs) No, ma'am, I think he should have seen it. It's something that he needs to know that things could like that could happen in life. You know, I mean, on, on one hand, this is this is true. I mean, Alien is a story that you can learn something <laughs> from, you know, 
to be fair to him, yeah, okay, I don't know about things like this could happen, but depends on how loose you are with things like this. But yeah, there are good lessons in Alien. Like, for example, if they had just listened to Ripley and followed quarantine, none of this would have ever happened. Yeah, just follow protocol. Alien is essentially a shake hands with danger in space. Like, this is what happens when you don't follow protocol, uh, xenomorphs run wild. But anyway, Gramps seems to take the same attitude in Terror Vision. Uh, MTV may be degeneracy, but lusty horror movies are educational. The events of Terror Vision are contingencies that should be prepared for. Absolutely. Uh, at some point here, there is a scene where the parents meet O.D., who is uh, Susie's boyfriend. And again, this is Uncle Rico from Napoleon Dynamite. Uh, and he is in full heavy metal gear. You know, he's got all the, the leather and the studs and he's got long hair and he is very Bill and Ted in personality. Dude. Yeah. Yeah. He's got chains. He's got he's got a band shirt. I think it says Wasp, like W.A.S.P. on yeah. it. Uh, I'm not. Was this a real band? I, I, I really am I, not sure. I don't know. Maybe it's his band because we also learned that he is a genius musician. Oh, yeah. We hear a bit of his band later. Not really enough to make an impression because uh, they start playing it for the monster later and the monster just destroys the speakers. Mm hmm. But anyway, they first see, okay, their daughter's got a heavy metal boyfriend and they're all horrified. But then it seems like they're trying to impress him, which makes sense because uh, OD is cool. You know, while <laughs> while waiting for Susie to get ready, he starts doing air guitar by himself to no music except the squealing of a lizard battle on the TV. <laughs> so like Gramps and Sherman are watching Robot Monster. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's Robot and we're what it's that scene where the lizards fight. Mm -hmm. uh, but I... I wonder if you noticed this, Rob. They're watching Robot Monster, but not with original audio. It looks like it's a version of the movie that has been redubbed. I don't know if that was a rights thing or what. Yeah, I don't know. But I did notice that, that they, uh, they, they clearly redubbed it for use here. I don't know. Could have been audio quality. Yeah. So at one point while they're in the living room there, Odie uh, looks at Gramps and he goes, Hey, old dude, what you eating? <laughs> Yeah, and uh, he says, lizard tail jerky, want a stick? And he says, no, thanks. I just pigged out. <laughs> but anyway, here we get an opportunity for Gramps to describe his theory, handing O.D. one of his pamphlets. Um, his theory is that lizard tails are the perfect regenerating food source because he says you eat the tail. The lizard don't give a hoot. He just grows a new one. Then you eat that, too. Yeah, not not sure this actually um, works in real life, but no, uh, you know. But then again, one gets the impression that um, that Grandpa here is uh, has signed up for a number of ideas that don't actually work in real life. Um, he's he's again clearly into a lot of conspiracy thinking. Uh, meanwhile, Garrett Graham and Mary Warrenov are having a conversation about uh, the daughter's boyfriend, and they're like, why do kids dress like that? Uh, you know, O.D., doesn't he know how ridiculous he looks? And this is while Garrett Graham is putting on his, uh, his like, swinger seduction outfit, which is mm -hmm. a shirt with a huge collar open down to, like, the, his stomach and wearing a bunch of gold chains. Oh, yeah. The, the costuming is always on point. Earlier, when he's working on the satellite dish, he has an ascot. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's great. There's also somewhere in here on the TV, there's a TV commercial for a TV called the Super TV, uh, the Super Television, which is shown rotating on a TV screen on the TV screen. <laughs> so the TV is showing a TV that is showing a TV, and they're all the same TV. Just a blissful, holy moment. 
the plot really gets going when Gramps tries to change the channel again. He wants to look at like the troop movements again, so-called. I, I think this looks like these are just like old fascist newsreels or something. I don't know what they are. Uh, mm-hmm. But he ends up tuning into the wrong thing. He's tuning into a monster. Uh, there's just like a claw and belching sounds and an eyeball on the TV screen. And they watch that for a while, but it seems to be kind of boring because like nothing's happening. It's just a monster there. Yeah, this is, of course, the hungry beast that has been zapped here from uh, across the the, the galaxy. And it's just sort of hanging out somehow on the other side of the TV screen. Now, before it actually emerges from the TV, at some point they end up watching part of another real movie. So they were doing Robot Monster earlier. Later, they're watching The Giant Claw, which is a sort of American kaiju movie from 1957 about a large bird from outer space that attacks airplanes. That's right. That's a Sam Katzman production, uh, same producer of um, A Creature with the Atom Brain. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, I guess even the giant claw cannot hold their attention. So Gramps and Sherman fall asleep watching TV, and then while they're asleep, a slime-covered tentacle monster slithers out of the screen of the TV, just like the girl in the ring, and is now in three-dimensional reality. Oh, yes. And the Hungry Beast here is just amazing. Uh, Absolutely fantastic practical effects monster. It's amorphous and thing-like, as in John Carpenter's The Thing, but at the same time has just a completely bonkers look to it. Like there are some, perhaps some rat fink qualities there. Also qualities of just a big happy dog. Mm -hmm. Uh, Which will become more apparent later on in the picture. Um, Key appendages, if we can call them that, seem to be an eyeball tentacle, a claw tentacle, and a tongue, like a big fleshy tongue that is rather amorphous, but also can kind of form a secondary face and mouth for biting people. Now, Gramps and Sherman uh, have some encounters with this monster. They get scared by it. Uh, Gramps is convinced that it was not a monster, but a burglar, because he says, uh, quote, sometimes them burglars wear Halloween masks. Hmm. And they go to Grandpa's fallout shelter to arm themselves. Meanwhile, Norton, the satellite dish repairman, comes back. Uh, this is this is uh, uh, Sonny Carl Davis again. He's uh, rooting around trying to fix the satellite dish. He finds that the electronics box connected to the base of the dish has overflowed with a sort of coleslaw of alien slime and guts. So he starts cleaning that out, and yeah. you know what's going to happen. That's right. Poor, poor rabbit is doomed here. He gets, uh, I think he is the first person eaten by the alien. As it should be, as, <laughs> as God wills it. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. 
And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or... I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend, or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. And so here we're into a kind of general rampage middle third of the movie. Uh, we do see the monster eat Gramps at some point. Uh, what exactly is the process here? It's sort of complicated. First, it puts the clamps on Gramps. So it has a claw that's sort of a clamp style claw, squeezes Grandpa's head and then folds his head in half. And there is blood squirting everywhere, but I don't know if it's supposed to be blood. It's not red. It is a green liquid leaking out of a Grandpa's head. So... I guess the monster somehow turns his blood green or is the green liquid coming from the monster? Yeah, I don't know. It's kind of like a troll toification, <laughs> yeah. perhaps. Yeah. Uh, then Gramps disintegrates. He melts into a green puddle on the floor. So melt movie status confirmed. Mm-hmm. And then the monster starts vacuuming up the green slime and Grandpa's clothes, but then spits out his dog tags. And then Sherman runs into the room just in time to to see the monster before it shock warps into the television. I have to add this this whole death scene is all the more shocking because it was done on wall to wall carpeting, you know, like that just (laughs) makes it all the more worse. How are you going to ever get that slime up out of there? Well, that is the thing. There are scenes in the movie where I just kept recently noticing anew the work that must have gone into making this house set the gaudiest house in history. (laughs) So there is like a combination of neon and pastel color schemes, uh, like neon and pastel upholstery on the furniture, just gold stuff everywhere, erotic artworks on every wall, not good artworks, like tasteless erotic paintings all over the place. It is kind of a Vegas strip Easter egg themed Mar-a-Lago, uh, <laughs> and they keep calling it the Pleasure Dome. Yeah, that that, that sums it up. But yeah, to, to your point, you keep seeing new 
new details, new bits of art, uh, new uh, curios on the shelf and so forth. Uh, yeah, they, a lot of love and attention went into creating this monstrosity of a house. Uh, so some other things go on in here. Sherman uh, calls the cops, but they do not want to come and help at this point. At some point later in the movie, a cop does come to the house just to get eat, eaten by the monster, uh, of course, mm-hmm. um, as as is canon in, in all films of this sort. At some point, also, Stan and Raquel come home with their dates, uh, and their their whole thing is they are into swinging, so they bring a couple home uh, to to swing with. And then there are, there are some funny elements to this whole romantic farce subplot, like uh, Stan trying to be uh, as attractive as he can. Is Garrett Graham is quite funny in that. There are also some painfully unfunny things that haven't aged well that are just like a misunderstanding about uh, Spiro, the guy they bring home, being bisexual and interested in Stan, which they did not understand. Uh, And that's like, uh, that's pretty cringy. Yeah, though, I guess if if I'm being generous, most of the good portion of the cringe seems to be placed on um, Garrett Graham's character for uh, for getting riled up over the whole situation. That's true. Like, I think a lot of other films of this time would have made Spiro the target of all the jokes in this thing. But actually more Garrett Graham is the the target of the jokes, I think. Yeah. And I will add the erotic jacuzzi room also starts paying off when the monster gets into the pool (laughs) and starts eating people uh, whilst pretending to be um, uh, some of the people that it has eaten. That's right. So it eats both of the guest swingers in the jacuzzi room and then also eats uh, the, the, the two main parents in the jacuzzi room. So all adults eaten now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is it's kind of fitting. It's like the kids were kind of on their own anyway, without a lot of guidance from the parental units and grandpa. And now they truly are on their own. The parents have been completely consumed by the stuff that came out of the television. Mm-hmm. Ah, yeah. It's a metaphor. I see. Yeah, it's deep. This movie rolls deep. So at some point, Sherman tries to explain this is before the parents get eaten. Uh, when Mary Warrenov comes home and finds him up and running around, she's like, get, you know, get in bed. Um, but he's trying to explain, no, a monster came out of the TV and it ate grandpa. And she's not interested in that. But she is mad about the puddle of slime on the living room floor floor. <laughs> and there was a line that really made me laugh because of, I guess, how it was phrased. Sherman says something like, that's what grandpa turned into. <laughs> Another funny scene from before uh, all the adults get eaten is when Garrett Graham is showing off his erotic jacuzzi room to the new friends. And they're, it, he's like bragging about his sound system he installed in the room and the mm-hmm. supposedly uh, Roman artworks on the walls. And there is a meanwhile, there's a reptile alien silently making imploring gestures on the TV screen behind them. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, and then finally, the sound comes on on the TV and uh, and the, the guy's going like people of Earth, you must destroy your satellite receivers and keep your televisions deactivated for 200 years <laughs> and going on with all this stuff. And then uh, the 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 swingers who have come to the house are basically like what is this movie it is making me feel very erotic <laughs> i love that the alien is is telling them to turn the tvs off for two centuries like it would have been you know it would have still been satirical if they were like people of earth you can be saved if you just turn your tvs off for 24 hours because obviously we're not going to do that they won't do it um, yeah. but but to make it 200 years uh that's perfect 
Now, there are some funny bits in here. One thing is that the the hungry beast uh, that comes out of the TV, after it eats people, it can sort of replicate them. So it's like the thing in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it at some point replicates Grandpa. And uh, there's a part where Mary Warrenov is like yelling down into the bunker to find Grandpa. And he the monster recreates grandpa's face and pokes it out from behind a wall and it's just dripping with ooze and Mary Warrenov doesn't notice. Yeah. I guess that the joke here is that yes, the hungry beast is, is not a great impersonator, but everyone in the world of this film is so self-absorbed that no one really notices. They're just like, Oh, I guess that is grandpa. I guess that is um, mom, dad, and their friends. Uh, you know, nobody questions it. Now at this point, again, uh, adults are out of the out of the picture. It's just the the youth um, who are who are left to stand up to the monster. And you might expect the film to take the sort of predictable um, you know battle uh, direction here, where okay, now the the kids, the youth, have to band together to fight the monster. And it seems like it's going to maybe go that way, or the movie's going to end prematurely, one or the other. But we end up going in a different direction. We end up going in an ET direction. That's right, because what are the youth going to do when uh, when a monstrous entity comes from the television? They're going to make an unholy alliance with it. That's right. Um, it's about to eat O.D. O.D. puts his arms up, you know, like, ah. And, uh, and as he does so, the monster stops for a second. The monster pauses. The monster's looking at those, uh, like, studs and chains. And we get the monster's flashback to its alien master, in some distant part of the universe, being nice to it, uh, raising it, giving it treats. And suddenly he's pacified. The hungry beast is pacified. Right. So the beast's humanoid alien friend had gloves that were like heavy metal leather studs. Yes. Perfect. I mean, it it is sweet, actually. (laughs) Because, again, they designed this creature so well that he is monstrous and horrific, but also kind of looks like a big stupid happy dog too yeah od says he looked at my studs and cooled out this dude's into metal <laughs> this is also the part where Susie is like he's so barfy <laughs> he is very barfy uh but they they go about teaching the barfy monster the ways of earth so they're feeding him food and i thought it was funny that all of the food they feed him is like hyper processed food that comes in plastic boxes or cardboard boxes yeah, and I think I could have missed something, but I think the joke too is that he doesn't the the hungry beast doesn't actually want to eat the food. He just wants to eat the packaging. Like he just yeah. he wants to eat garbage. Yeah. Um they also teach him about music. They they play OD's music for him, but he uh like kicks uh like stabs a tentacle into one of the speakers and all that. They teach the monster about TV, of course, the most important invention on earth. Yeah. <laughs> And so for a little bit, it seems like they're, you know, they're pacifying the monster. They're making friends with the monster. But uh, as it turns out, like this is not going to work. Um, They can only pacify the beast for so long. The beast is is unpredictable. And we eventually learn that this is why uh, he was disposed of. This is why he was essentially uh, loaded into a teleporter and beamed across the universe. And this is where Pluthar shows up to save the day. This is, I believe, the same alien we see at the beginning of the picture, uh, disposing of the mutant. This is the same alien that has been visible uh, on the the TV transmission uh, saying, people of Earth, you must turn off your televisions for two centuries. Uh, But now he has appeared in person, 
beamed through the television into the living room. And he's wearing uh, like a like a space suit so that he can withstand Earth's atmosphere. And, you know, he spent the whole picture trying to warn them about um, about this monster and about the threat and how dangerous this organism is. Um, and uh, now he's here and he's like, I am here to help you. Let me help you. Um, and he even offers to resurrect the dead family members, though uh, I thought this was hilarious. He's, he does add that they will have to live in special aquariums after <laughs> they are genetically resurrected. Yeah. But here we get the intersection with another plot thread that's been developing. Wait, did we even mention the thing about Medusa yet? I don't think we did. Oh, you know, so they, they called the cops. The cops yeah. showed up and the cop was killed by the monster. Yeah. Um, so they need someone. They were like, well, let's call Medusa. She's into this stuff. And, yeah. and she's a part of our lives because she's on television. Let's call wanna, her. They want to make money, I think. Oh, that's right. This is when they they have seemingly befriended the creature. And they're like, yeah, let's make some money. Yeah. So Susie calls up Medusa on the, you know, the TV horror host, the Elvira mm-hmm. type uh, lady and says, I've got something really scary for you that would be great for your show. You know, give us some money and and uh, and and you can have it. Uh, trying to sell the monster to her. And Medusa is initially not interested. She says she has several parties to go to. Uh, but they're like, well, here's our address. You know, you can come by our party later if you want to check out what we've got to show you. So you don't think Medusa is going to actually come to their house, but I guess she does. Maybe those other parties she went to were really lame. Yeah, we don't know for sure. But she shows up. Uh, she leaves her producer, I think, in the vehicle. Um, and uh, she comes in and she sees Pluthar talking to the, the children, to the youths here. And um, he has like some sort of a ray gun in his hand. So she decides to save the day. Like she, her noble act is to come up behind Pluthar and, uh, and, cr- and, and bash in his dome, uh, that, that uh, like acrylic or glass dome that is uh, around his head, uh, bashes that in. And then we get this great scene where Pluthar's uh, helmet um, depressurizes and his head explodes inside it. So he here we go. This was the one guy who could have saved everyone. Uh, and now he's dead. He's sort of the he's kind of the, the Milton uh, Arbogast of this picture. The, the detective from Psycho. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Medusa's like, hey, yeah, you're welcome. I just saved you. Uh, but of course, she has not saved anyone. The monster proceeds to eat absolutely everybody. And so the ending of the picture, uh, we get for the ending of the picture, we get this classic, the nightmare continues slash spreads ending. Uh, the hungry beast has eaten everyone in the house and then some. Uh, it's taken on the form of Medusa, sort of. Again, it's not that the creature's not that good at mimicking human beings. And, the, and its mimicking of Medusa is just really awful. It's only about half there. But mm-hmm. again, People in this world are completely self-absorbed and not very attentive. So she climbs in the back of her producer's vehicle and she's like, let's go back to the TV station. And so that's where they're headed, inevitably to spread more terror vision across the earth. Cue the music. Yep. Terror vision. And uh, yeah, it's played for kooky laughs. Uh, and I love it, despite the fact that uh, all of our characters died and perished in the belly of a monster. Well, it's a kind of perfect bogeyman figure in that regard. So it's like, you know, kids, if you don't turn off the TV in time, you will you will know what it is to roast in the depths of a slur this day. <laughs> All right. So that is Terror Vision. Um, again, I, I think a pretty, pretty fabulous and fun um, a bit of weird cinema from the mid 1980s. Didn't make much of a splash, I think, when it came out, but has developed a cult following over time. I'm trying to think if this basic plot element were used today, what it would be. A monster gets beamed through TikTok, I guess. 
Yeah, they would probably it would probably be some sort of a social media thing, right? That would be the main commentary. That's the TV is less of the idiot box, and now the idiot box is the thing in our hands. I mean, they're both still idiot boxes. There's a, yes, there's still lots of idiocy to go around in media, but yeah, I guess we'd have to take a slightly different form. And satellite, it's not really the satellite now; it would be the internet. So it would be the hungry beast crawling through the internet. Um, and each character would be like a different stereotype of how obsessed we are with different corners of the internet. Mm, yeah. But it wouldn't be the same. It wouldn't be the same television. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and close it out there. But uh, just to remind you, Stuff to Blow Your Mind is primarily a science podcast with uh, core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. On Mondays, we do a listener mail. On Wednesdays, we do a short-form monster fact or artifact episode. But on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns to just watch a weird movie on Weird House Cinema. And if you want a list of all the movies we've covered over the years, well, you can look in a couple of places. I blog about these at smutamusic.com. But also, if you go to letterbox.com, that's L-E-T-T-E-R-B-O-X-D.com, you'll find our username there. We are Weird House. And we have a list there of all the movies we've covered so far. And sometimes there's a glimpse ahead at what's coming up next. Uh, we're, uh, we're in reruns next week. But the week after that, we do have a film picked out. And you'll see a hint of that on the Letterboxd list. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. What kind of fun is waiting for you at King's Island? The holy cow, we're way too high and here comes the drop kind of fun. The make a splash all summer kind of fun. The I can't believe I ate that whole funnel cake. Let's get another kind of fun. But most importantly, at King's Island, you'll find for the fun of it kind of fun. Don't wait to start your fun season. Kings Island is now open on weekends. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.